Eminent artist and art historian David C. Driscoll speaking with WVIA's Robert Salzberg in 2006 about his inspirations. Nature is the first teacher for me. I look out everywhere I am, in Maine, in Maryland. I grew up in Appalachia in western North Carolina, and there were the beautiful pine trees, the hills, and, and the flowers, the wildflowers, and things like that. And so I, I consider that part and parcel of my beginning in art. And I can never really get away from it, as some artists have been able to do, seemingly totally through non-objective uh, form and abstraction. Even when I am close to abstraction, there are elements of nature that find uh, um, a place in my art. And so for me, I am always learning. That's why I say it's the teacher for me. I'm always bringing it back because nature is forever growing. It's forever showing me something that I didn't see before. In particular, when I look at a tree, the pine tree, I look at it in so many different ways. I see in and out of it. I see around it. I see in between and so forth. So that's a part of the inspiration that nature brings to me, in particular colors. And when I go to Maine in the summer, the garden, a large flower garden, as well as a vegetable garden, and I utilize so much of that in my, in my work. You fill areas with patterns of stylized natural forms, often leaf and branch and raindrop forms. And they look like textile design patterns that would be cut into a woodblock, many of them. Yes, I think in many ways I have been greatly influenced by uh, textiles. Interesting you would say that. Uh, My mother was a strip quilter. I've looked at African textiles. I've collected African textiles, African garments and what have you. And uh, all of those things have continued to play a significant role in the iconography of my own work. And I think some people come by this kind of a decision by chance, by just looking at things and being informed visually, but I've actually studied them as a historian, and so they mean much more to me than just the usual. They're not just designs and decorations. They're really a, a cultural influence in my work. Distinguished artist and art historian David C. Driscoll, speaking with WVIA's Robert Salzberg in 2006 in connection with an exhibition of his work at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. In 2020, David Driscoll succumbed to complications of COVID-19, and he was remembered around the world. As an artist, David Driscoll saw his expressive figurative painting enter into prestigious museums and collections across the country. As a collector and curator, he helped to shape the story of African-American art and carve out its central place in the telling of American history. The formal remembrances and obituaries were very meaningful, but perhaps the tribute from the city paper in Washington, D.C., with heartfelt words from his former students, that tribute is most revealing. When people took art classes from David, even if they did not become art curators or scholars or artists themselves, they always kept an appreciation for art, says Tulisa Fleming, interim chief curator of visual arts for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I've run into a lot of people who've said, oh, yes, I took a class with David. I never forgot it. Fleming grew up with Driscoll's work, 
Her parents bought one of his pieces, a painting of a Yoruba deity, the year before she was born. She says that she first met Driscoll when he gave a lecture at Spelman College when she was a student there. His door was always open, Fleming says, when she was a graduate student at the University of Maryland, and she even vacationed with Driscoll's family at his summer home in Maine. Later in life, as a curator with the Smithsonian Institution, Fleming purchased Behold Thy Son, perhaps Driscoll's best-known painting, a pieta scene that depicts the Virgin Mary cradling the mutilated body of a slain Emmett Till. It was her first acquisition for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, where the painting is still on view. While Driscoll was a formidable presence as a scholar and curator, his name is attached to more than 40 museum catalogs, he conducted a lot of his work as a mentor in his garden. That's where Jefferson Pinder, a performance artist and the interim dean of faculty at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, says he got to know Driscoll. While he'd taken classes with him as a young student at Maryland, he didn't recognize the man for his accomplishments until later. When I got back to D.C., I said, I want to be your guy. Driscoll said, I've got some weeds that have grown really high in the backyard and I could use some help cutting them down. Pinder says, that pretty much was the start. I didn't know any African-American artists his age who had been doing it for that long. He lifted the hood for me. This is how it's done. Driscoll was famed for his work as a naturalist. Spirituality and nature are persistent themes in his work. One of the most popular classes at Maryland involved making pigments from natural materials. Driscoll's personal botanical garden featured exotic flora from clippings he acquired all over the world. He liked to host friends and guests, and his household was a refuge to many. Pinder says that Driscoll approached the study of art as a priest-like calling, and that he was a source of stability for artists who thought they wanted to be the next Basquiat. I was in the garden once, and Questlove was just passing through, Pinder says. How the heck does Dr. Driscoll know Questlove? Questlove came by for his gumbo. That from a remembrance of David C. Driscoll in the city paper of Washington, D.C. in April 2020 by Kristen Capps. An exhibition about to open at the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre titled David C. Driscoll and Friends, Creativity, Collaboration, and Friendship aims to capture something of the spirit of David Driscoll as an artist, of course, but also as a mentor and friend and lover of nature. The exhibition highlights the artistic legacy of David C. Driscoll and his relationship with fellow artists, many who have a significant place in the art canon. The show opens today and will run through February 26, 2023. The exhibition was curated by Sheila Bergman of the University of California, Riverside, Curly Raven Holton of the Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland, and Wilkes Gallery Director Heather Sincavage. The exhibition is the first of its kind for this collection and explores the work and Driscoll's relationship with such figures as Hale Woodruff, James Porter, Elizabeth Catlett, Carol Walker, Romare Bearden, Keith Morrison, Jacob Lawrence, and many more. Heather Sincavage, director of the Sordoni Gallery and co-curator of this important show, 
paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about David Driscoll and his legacy. David Driscoll, I really see as a central character to what became contemporary black art. He was an artist, first and foremost, but he was also an educator. He was a curator. He was an organizer of a lot of things. And I think, though, probably the thing he's most gifted in is connecting people together. And for him, he was someone who would show up and in being there, he would support other artists, but also let other artists meet each other. And in meeting each other, it was building community. And it was certainly something that we needed after the civil rights movement, because the first museum exhibition of African-American art that happened at the LACMA was in 1976, curated by David Driscoll. And the focus of the exhibition was 200 years of Black American art. I mean, so figuring he's making up for lost time. He's taking artists that are really significant to the art history canon and finally adding them into the textbooks, into the museum institutions, like really giving them the recognition that they so deserved so much before 1976. And that sounds like a full-time job for anyone. And yet you said... First and foremost, he was an artist. It's amazing. I, I mean, in in really getting to know about David Driscoll, I don't know where <laughs> this man had the energy, to be honest with you, because it sort of seemed like from the get-go, from when he started as a student at Howard University, he just really took to getting involved. You know, it was not just being a student, it was being all in as a student and then working at a gallery in downtown Washington, D.C., which was mostly, primarily, Black-run and Black-represented. And in that respect, as a student at Howard, he's driving cars for Romare Bearden, escorting people around town. He's sort of like the man behind the scenes as a student and really commits to being this kind of person in the mix. And, And I think, first and foremost, it comes from two places. It comes from... First, James Porter, who we can consider the grandfather of African-American art history, who tells him that you have to take it upon yourself to tell our story because it's no one else's responsibility but ours. And I think that's something that takes Driscoll forward into his career. And he hears that at a young age. And second was Lois Melu Jones, who was a faculty member there at Howard um, teaching like watercolor and color theory and stuff, who says that. You not only have to make art, you have to collect art, you have to document what we are doing together. So part of the exhibition that we've put together is also a lot of the documentation of people coming together. So we had a treasure trove of photographs that were taken by Driscoll documenting all of these places and events and important exhibitions that were coming together throughout his lifetime. That's an extraordinary challenge, I'm sure. Tell us then how you got involved and what this exhibition aims to do in that way, how you involved other people and how it's come together. Well, I reached out to the Driscoll Center because of the artist Juan Logan, who I hosted at the Sordoni last year. He's a very prolific contemporary African-American artist, and we had a really great exhibition of his work, but... He said, you know, I'm in this other exhibition and I think you might be interested in it. And it's being organized by the David Driscoll Center. And it was called American Landscapes. And he sent me the checklist and I was like, this is a beautiful show. 
And what it was doing was it was taking some of these landscape painters that we all know and love, Edward Hopper, Winslow Homer, Andrew Wyeth, and putting African-American artists alongside of them saying, yeah, it wasn't just white guys doing this. It was also all of these other people doing this. And it was gorgeous. And I reached out, Juan, you are absolutely right. I would like to have that show at the Sordoni Gallery. And when I reached out to the Driscoll Center, unfortunately, it was unable to travel. But in talking with the director, Curly Raven Holton, he said, let's work together. We'll do something that is going to have the same type of significance. David Driscoll only recently passed away. He passed away in 2020 due to COVID. And we feel that he was under-recognized for all the contributions that he has had in the art world. And we both felt that the contributions were in the relationships that he built and the visibility that he provided. So Curly and I decided that we were going to work together and we were pretty excited about it. We started formulating a list. A few weeks into it, Curly's like, you know, I was just talking with Dr. Berkman at University of California, Riverside, and they would like to be collaborators. Would you mind? And I'm like, more the merrier, because isn't that the spirit of Driscoll? David Driscoll was about collaboration, visibility, working together. So we came together, merely strangers, into this team, all to honor the legacy of collaboration of David Driscoll. So that's how the, the project started. And will it travel? It will. The exhibition will debut at Wilkes University. So we will be the first to show the show. And it's really a beautiful show and experience. <laughs> and after here, it will leave and go to University of California, Riverside. Then it will return to Pennsylvania and it will be shown at University of Pennsylvania. And then it will be down at the David C. Driscoll Center at University of Maryland. And after that, we believe it has been sold to a organization that will then push it around. How then did you select the works, Driscoll and Paintings by? Yeah. So the team first felt it was important to really identify figures that were important to Driscoll and people who had substantial collaborations with Driscoll. And there were also decisions to be made if we were going to focus primarily just on artists of color or if we were going to be significant artist relationships. One, for instance, that Driscoll had, he he was actually knew Georgia O'Keeffe very well. So we were like, do we leave out Georgia O'Keeffe? And that was the, a big question for us because David Driscoll wasn't necessarily just about the collaboration between artists of color. It was really across the board. But we did feel as though in the museum's institutions, artists of color are still underrepresented. And we felt as though that is really what we should be doing here. So we figured, yes, Georgia O'Keeffe is well known and loved and could even use more <laughs> amplification. But these artists need it more. And these artists are important to the art history canon. And we need to show our community, our, all of our communities, why that is and how that evolved because we're looking at work that is done in the 30s and 40s up until contemporary day. And where are these works from? Are they all from the they, his own collection? They're all from the, the Driscoll Center. Some of them were in David's personal collection. Some were acquired by the center itself because the center does have an ongoing collecting philosophy where they are going to continue to collect artists of color. What will we see by Driscoll? Yeah, yeah. 
So the funny thing is, is that the team and I, we were all kind of talking a little bit about who was Driscoll as an artist. I mean, obviously, he had a very long career. I mean, he was at Howard in the 50s. He was awarded a scholarship to the Skowhegan School in 53-ish. And that's in Maine. That's in Maine, yes. And it was funny because he was a student at Howard at the time. He was a junior. And usually they would decide on a student to send it. Usually it was a graduate student. But Lois Jones was like, no, we got to send Driscoll. And her voice prevailed. She's a strong woman. (laughs) But the interesting thing about that was when I think a lot about how artists of color careers evolved, a lot of it was counteracting a lot of the racist stereotyping and also becoming more aware of African roots. So we have a lot of like African motifs as we kind of move forward with a lot of artists. But that's actually not where Driscoll started. Really, we see a lot of Driscoll in trees. And that really we can attribute to Maine. <laughs> and and when Driscoll goes to Skowhegan, he falls in love with Maine. And after a few years, he buys a plot of land and decides he's going to build his summer home and studio in Falmouth, Maine that he was still utilizing at the time of his death. And in fact, University of Riverside has taken upon themselves to document it. So they're doing a Matterport documentation where you can kind of walk through it. So that's an extra little thing that is coming out of this exhibition, the documentation of the the studio. The, The thing about Driscoll is that he was also like an accomplished gardener and herbalist. And he was also incredibly spiritual. Like his parents were very religious. And he saw spirituality in the woods of Maine. So trees, you see them over and over and over again. You see pine trees number five. You see Maine woods. You know, all of those are represented in our show. And I would say those are very much to the core of Driscoll. That is what runs through him until his death. And it's funny because as the collaborators and I talked, we made some assumptions. And sure, African identity was important to him. He did go to Africa in the 70s. He was there several times. Lois Jones had gone. Same thing. So that was important. And it definitely factored in both of their work. But I would say ahead of that, though, Lois's career was in landscape painting. She grew up in Martha's Vineyard. She ended up at a young age in Paris. You know, she's she didn't want to come home from Paris. They were painting these beautiful landscapes because that means as much to them as, you know, the physical identity. But that kind of came a little bit later. They had to uncover that themselves. So did you start with Driscoll or were you working simultaneously? Mm, mm, that's a good question. Um, so we wanted to develop that that list of people And there were some key things that we wanted to kind of pull out of those people. Like one of the very significant relationships was with Romero Bearden. He looked up to him. He's almost like this fatherly figure to him. And there was a a good amount of time where Driscoll kind of takes on the collage technique that Bearden's known for and really likes it, responds to it. He's making trips from D.C. to New York to his studio, like very frequently to kind of stay in touch. And he has his show at D.C. Moore in New York City and invites Bearden to come. And he says, this one's for you. I made this one for you. And he goes, uh, with, all, with all due respect, I kind of like this one over there. And Driscoll's like, oh, OK, why? He goes, well, this this is accomplished, but it's not you. 
this is more you. I want that one. And that kind of sent Driscoll on his heels a little bit. And what ended up happening in 1980, he went off to the Yaddo Artist Retreat. And he spent two months there where he started to develop what was called his strip collage technique. And that became what Driscoll's work was about. So we were really looking at sort of like the the chapters of Driscoll because there's many. We have the landscape paintings. We have the strip collage. We have the African motifs. So we have all of those represented. And then we were looking at what, where was that coming from in response to people in his community or other types of influences and what were other people doing? So, you know, obviously we have two Romare Beardens in the in the exhibition and we have that alongside of a strip collage. So you can kind of see the contrast of the two. Did you have to spend a lot of time in Maryland? I did spend a good amount of time. I wanted to spend more (laughs) time in Maryland because one of the things that we were provided access to was the correspondence. And that was really beautiful because one of my favorite artists is Jacob Lawrence and I went to University of Washington, uh, which is in Seattle, and Jacob Lawrence taught there. And while I was in my graduate program, one of our in-progress graduate exhibitions was at the Jacob Lawrence Gallery. And he made a point to be there every year for that and meet all of the MFAs and spend time with them. So I had my show the year before he passed away and spent some time with him. And I was like, God, what a, like a, like a really kind and insightful man. So I had this personal interest in Lawrence. So I was very interested in what was Driscoll's relationship with Lawrence. And it started very formally because Lawrence was pretty established when Driscoll kind of came on the scene. And Driscoll's gone in his early years of teaching. And he what he's starting to do is he's building slide libraries because we don't have them. And how does he do that? He has to go directly to the artist and ask for slides, you know, like, do you have do you have a slide collection or is there a way that we can create a slide collection? And during this time when the Toussaint series is out and he's first of all, I want to bring that to Fisk. So can I do that? Second of all, if we can't do that, is there a way that we can get a slide collection where our students can have awareness of this? So it's all very formal, like these early types of correspondence, these letters back and forth. And they're both very formal with each other. And it's not until Driscoll and he connect in Maine. So Lawrence ends up at Skowhegan as like a visiting artist and Driscoll's there every summer and they meet there. And then you see the correspondence become very warm and fuzzy. You know, they're like, oh, I had such a good time with you. I was so happy that you brought me to me anytime. Come on back. You know, like it just became like they were sort of bosom buddies in a way. And it was just really kind of sweet to read like 40 years of correspondence that was just essentially very formal and Driscoll's genuine interest in providing that visibility, becoming these personal relationships. And it was lovely. (laughs) So the impact that, say, Romare Bearden had on Driscoll, what about Driscoll and younger Oh, absolutely. He was beloved by his students. And we have many of them in the exhibition. Mary Loveless O'Neill, Margot Humphrey, Stephanie Pogue. They are all beloved students of his and therefore making a career of their own. But Mary Loveless O'Neill, she is the person, though, that said that Driscoll showed up. He would show up at an opening at a major museum 
or a church hallway to see the work, support the work and be there, especially as an established artist, educator, administrator, all the things that he was, he would travel to great lengths to support especially his students, but artists that he believed that really should be supported. And by that point, him showing up to these things provides great credibility to these artists. So the fact that he would invest that time and energy was incredibly valuable because he's sort of like the the maker, <laughs> the maker of their careers, really, at this point, especially after the LACMA show. You mentioned that he was told it's up to you to be an artist and also tell our story and take all these responsibilities. But you mentioned collecting in there. There is a collection that he did have mm -hmm. a personal collection. It's at the Driscoll Center. Yeah. What did the collecting part of it mean to him? Yeah. So he was very much about building collections for himself, building collections for others. He was hired by several people, significant collections across the board to build that representation. But I mean, he was saving his pennies early on to purchase Lois's work. But yeah, it, it was very much part of his own environment and then became very much part of how the University of Maryland began the collection to then establish the Driscoll Center. I don't think people understand the challenges of putting together and hanging a show. You have partners in this. Who did what? And it's your gallery first. What goes on in this kind of yeah, process? Yeah, yeah. So as a team, we gave each other a lot of flexibility. And for me, because we're debuting the show, no pressure, but, but I felt it was really important because I know in our community, there isn't necessarily a big awareness of all of these artists, including Driscoll. So I wanted to be very sure that there was context provided in the space. So each artist has a short bio that's within the space itself. It, it talks a little bit about their achievements, but also their, their connection to Driscoll and what that was like. So I really felt it important to not only show the work and his work in context to others, but also provide the idea of the of the friendship because that was very much about the community that was being built. So our space is organized in a way that integrates Driscoll's work amongst his friends. And I, I kind of felt that made a lot of sense to me because as he was evolving as an artist and a collector and an educator, he was really shifting. And you'll see that as you move through the space, you're seeing the growth of an artist and you're seeing the people that are alongside of it. So it's somewhat chronological in a way, you know, it mixes up a little bit. But for the most part, the goal of it was to keep it sort of chronological. So like an artist that precedes Driscoll is Aaron Douglas. He's the first one to be shown in the exhibition. And we're showing student work of Driscoll kind of alongside of him then, because that's like the 50s where he's becoming more like aware of things. So that that was kind of my goal there. Now, I know once it goes to Riverside, they have a little bit of a different scenario. They have an emphasis on photography there, so they do want to include more of the archive images. I didn't have that space. Both of these places are much bigger than Wilkes University is and the Sordoni Gallery is, so 
they have a little bit more flexibility, but you're still seeing the entire exhibition. You just may not get some of the other things. What about the supporting activities? You're always so good at that. Yeah, yeah. So on the second day of our show, kind of our grand opening event is an art in context feature event. It's a curator's panel. So everybody's here. <laughs> all my collaborators. Not zooming in. No, no. We are all in person. So we have Curly Raven Holton and we have Sheila Berkman and Tamra Schlossenberg, who is the registrar at the Driscoll Center and was very integral during this entire process. So we thought it was really important that she's there because she's the person that's the steward of the collection. It's going to be hosted by Robert Salzberg, and I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have that day. And following that, we'll actually have a reception. A week later on Wednesday, November 9th, we're going to have a film screening, and that is the documentary entitled Black Art in the Absence of Light. And for those who haven't seen it, it centers around Driscoll. It starts with him, and it's talking about the LACMA show and why that was important, and then how it kind of went forward from there. And you hear voices like the Astor Gates and Carrie James Marshall, Amy Sherrill, major, major artists of our contemporary day. And we can trace that back to everything that he was doing. And we have a, a newer program that we're offering for our community, which is our second Saturday Family Hour. And that is on a Saturday afternoon, November 12th, where we invite um, children of all ages to come to the gallery and create Kara Walker silhouettes. And Kara Walker is a contemporary artist, probably one of the best known women artists of color um, living today. And we have a work of hers in the exhibition as well. But yeah, we're inviting people to come out to make their own Kara Walker style silhouettes. And we have the Oosterhout Library, who's going to do a story time. And, you know, you could certainly even kick back with a coloring sheet if you like. So it's just a really nice way for families to come together for a free event right there in the gallery and appreciate what's going on in the walls around them. And then finally, our collaboration with the Diamond City Partnership, we have Cocktails and Culture coming back on December 1st, which is a happy hour kind of event. We are having African cuisine and I'll be doing a tour of the exhibition and we'll also have live music. That is not a free event. And then the show continues until the end of February and we actually do have more stuff going on in February. So during the semester break, we'll be closed regular hours. It'll just be by appointment. And then when we reopen, we'll be moving forward with some collaborations that we'll announce at a later time. But we do have a scholar coming in from Valdosta State who's going to talk a little bit about the time frame of why, why Driscoll and why this time. It's going to be pretty fun. Heather Sinkavich, director of the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, co-curator of this important show titled David C. Driscoll and Friends, Creativity, Collaboration, and Friendship, works from the David C. Driscoll Center. The show will open today and run through February 26, 2023, highlighting the artistic legacy of David Driscoll and his relationship with fellow artists, many of whom have a significant place in the art canon. The show was curated by Sheila Bergman of the University of California, Riverside, 
Curly Raven Holton of the Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland, and as we said, Wilkes Gallery Director Heather Sincavage. And they will all be on hand tomorrow evening from 5 to 7 at the gallery. It's a curator's panel, and it will be led by our colleague here, WVIA's Robert Salzberg, who is quite a student of David Driscoll and the one who did for us in 2006 the conversation with David Driscoll for Art Scene. Also, there will be Art in Context, a film screening on the 9th of November at 5, Black Art in the Absence of Light, the documentary. And also the second Saturday Family Hour on November 12th from noon to 2. And for more information on the web, wilkes.edu slash Sordoni Art Gallery, S-O-R-D-O-N-I, wilkes.edu slash Sordoni Art Gallery. The gallery is located at 141 South Main Street in Wilkes-Barre. Again, the show, David C. Driscoll and Friends, Creativity, Collaboration, and Friendship, works from the David C. Driscoll Center, opening today, November 1st, and running through February 26th, 2023, with a special curator's panel discussion tomorrow from 5 to 7. And for more information on the web, wilkes.edu slash Sordoni Art Gallery. And the event tomorrow is free and open to the public at the gallery. And the gallery is at 141 South Main Street in Wilkes-Barre wilkes.edu slash Sordoni Art Gallery. Mm-hmm.